get the unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Thursday, August 31st, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, China's ambassador to the U.S. has commented on bilateral cooperation following the American Commerce Secretary's visit to Beijing. The head of the military junta in Gabon is named a transitional leader for the Central African country. And Afghanistan's marking two years since the hasty withdrawal of U.S. troops from the country. In business, China's manufacturing sector reported improvements in August. In sports, a Chinese tennis player pulls, uh, pulls off an incredible upset at the U.S. Open. In culture and entertainment, Oppenheimer enjoys a strong opening at the Chinese box office. Now the day's top stories. Chinese President Xi Jinping has replied to a letter from the grandson of a former U.S. general thanking him for efforts from the Stobel family to promote people-to-people exchanges between the two countries. President Xi told John Eastbrook that he hopes there'll be more cooperation and trust between the two countries. Uh, Easterbrook is the grandson of General Joseph Stilwell, who helped China in its resistance against Japanese aggression during World War II. Uh, Stilwell visited China five times and lived in the country for 12 years. Chongqing recently hosted a series of events to mark the 140th anniversary of Stilwell's birth. The southwestern city converted Stilwell's old residence into a museum. Mark Neal spoke with John Easterbrook about history and their missions today. In Northern California, John Easterbrook shows me a photo collection of his grandfather, four-star U.S. Army General Joseph Stilwell. He would go down just about every day, go down to the front lines and to encourage the Chinese troops. John himself served for 22 years in the Army, which gives him an even greater appreciation for his grandfather's contributions in commanding U.S. and Chinese forces in the China-Burma-India theater. John says his grandfather helped start programs, especially in Burma, known today as Myanmar, that provided rehabilitation, compensation, and recognition for Chinese soldiers. You also got to know the Chinese soldiers uh, from the time of their conscription and the villages uh, to their bravery on the battlefield. So I think you see that, that feeling of friendship and knowledge of the reality of the soldiers stayed with him for quite some time. John even has a copy of the drawing that coined his grandfather's nickname, Vinegar Joe, a reference to his no-nonsense blunt nature. But John's parents told him of another side to Vinegar Joe. They conveyed to me that he was first of all a family man, but he had a lot of characteristics, such as being a very modest guy. He didn't wear ribbons or decorations on his uniform. He said he didn't need that. John was only five when his grandfather passed away. He still has some of his grandfather's special items. It's very hardwood, and uh, this is a very nice piece. Of course, all these pieces come apart, and you've got these individual panels. Stillwell's appreciation for Chinese culture is evident not only in his collections, but also by the fact that he spoke and wrote fluent Chinese. John himself has made 17 trips to China, and in early August, both of his daughter's families traveled to Chongqing, China to attend commemorative events for the Stillwell Museum's 140th birth anniversary of Joseph Stillwell. He loved the Chinese people. Great respect and admiration for the Chinese people. And that respect and admiration has been passed down now through 
number of generations. The key thing that we need to do is leverage Stillwell's respect, admiration, and friendship for the Chinese people to these to people-to-people activities now to show that basically we're kind of all the same deep down. In their backyard, John and his wife Han show me a special flowering plant, Fuchsia Vinegar Joe, a variety that was actually named after Stillwell. And in front, they have another variety of fuchsia that was taken directly from Stillwell's yard. Subsequent generation from my grandparents' home. Colorful reminders of a unique bond that continues to be passed on from generation to generation. That was Mark Neal with a report about efforts to strengthen China-U.S. ties among the Stillwell family. China's ambassador to the United States has addressed the need for cooperation between the two countries. Xia Feng was speaking at the U.S.-China Business Forum as U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo wrapped up a visit to China. We need to find a path for the turbulent world to restore stability. This is a challenging time. Global recovery remains sluggish, and every country has its own problems to tackle. All are in the same boat. No one can stay aloof, still less profit at others' expense. Block confrontation will not bring peace or security, and decoupling will only backfire. Only by pulling together can we tide over the difficulties. The ambassador also said that confrontation and conflict between two of the world's largest economies will produce no winner. Uh, uh, Beninese President Patrice Talon's in Beijing for a four-day state visit. Talon's the first president from the African country in five years to visit. Sunya has more. China's foreign ministry has said this visit will further deepen the already close ties between the two countries as well as the ties between China and Africa. Also, Chinese foreign ministry says the African leader will attend the global summit for the service trade fair that will kick off this Saturday in Beijing. This is the first visit by the Berlin president since 2018. He was last here for the China-Africa Cooperation Forum in 2018, and this visit also comes as the two countries marked last year the 50th anniversary of free instatement of bilateral ties. That was in 1972, and Chinese Foreign Ministry had said over that period, the two countries had a good growth momentum and a deep and high level of political trust and has enjoined fruitful cooperation and coordination across spectrum. That was Sunya reporting on China-Benin ties. Uh, Chinese Vice President Han Zheng has called on China and the UK to foster favorable business conditions and create new opportunities for growth and emphasize the importance of mutual respect and win-win cooperation while meeting with UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly in Beijing. Cleverly said the two sides should continue to strengthen high-level exchanges and explore new areas of cooperation. Earlier, Cleverly met with his Chinese counterpart Wang Yi and reaffirmed Britain's adherence to the One China Principle. The Chinese Foreign Minister urged both sides to work together in the volatile geopolitical landscape. We constantly value the prominent status of the United Kingdom, remain dedicated to fostering a stable and mutually beneficial China-UK relationship, and believe that Sino-British cooperation holds global significance.
Cleverly says he believes China and the UK can maintain cooperation despite their differences. We are clear-eyed about the areas where we have fundamental disagreements with China, and I raise those issues when we meet. But I, I think it's important we also recognise that we have to have a pragmatic, sensible working relationship with China because of the issues uh, that affect us all around the globe. Uh, the British Foreign Secretary also pledged the UK's commitment to the Chinese market and expressed interest in technology, AI and renewable resources. Uh, coming up, junta leaders in Gabon have named a transitional leader for the country. Last week, Japan began releasing nuclear contaminated water from the tsunami-crippled Fukushima power plant. Opposition voices are overridden by over one million tons of the water stored on shore for over a decade. This week, Deep Dive hopes to unravel the controversies. Has the UN nuclear watchdog's report been distorted to appear as an endorsement? Why is the Japanese government ignoring protests from neighboring countries? Available on all major podcast platforms, just search for Deep Dive. Right, 10 minutes past the hour. The military junta in Gabon's named the former head of the presidential guard as the transitional leader in the Central African country. General Bryce Oligwe Nguema became commander-in-chief of the guard back in 2019. Military officers earlier said that uh, they'd seize power after Olibongo Ondimba won a third term as president. Ondimba is now under house arrest and is calling on the people to support him. People here have arrested me and my family. My son is somewhere, my wife is in another place, and I'm at the residence. Right now, I'm at the residence, and nothing happening. Nothing is happening. I don't know what's, what's going on. So I'm calling you to make noise, to make noise, to make noise, really. Of the international community's voice concerns over Wednesday's coup, uh, with the African Union condemning the move as a flagrant violation of the organization's legal and political instruments. China's issued the highest typhoon warning as Saula crawls closer to the country's southern coastline. It's forecast to reach the area between Guangdong on the mainland and Hong Kong on Friday. Guangdong province has upgraded its response in preparation for strong winds and rains. In the meantime, another typhoon's formed and could affect the East China Sea as early as this weekend. Wang Tianyi takes a look at these two weather systems uh, from the China Meteorological Administration. Zaolal is expected to move towards into the north by west direction in the coming days with a rather slow speed. It is likely to make its landfall somewhere between Huilai, Guangdong and Hong Kong. And the approach of Sela will pose a great danger to the coastal regions as the majority of them are likely to brace for rather gusty winds up to seven go force or even heavier. Flooding rain will be another major concern, especially for the majority of Guangdong. We are likely to see numerous amounts of torrential, if not extremely torrential amounts of rain in the forecast. And meanwhile, the development of another typhoon Haikui will possibly restrain Sela's power in the near future. Future. And usually when two tropical storms move close to each other within a distance less than 1,000 kilometers, there could see a double typhoon effect. And either 
the smaller one get absorbed by the larger one, or these two individuals will eventually move away from each other. And currently, Haikui is forecast to move towards into the north by west direction in the near future, approaching southeast China seaboard early next week. One thing to be sure is that there could see quite a lot of typhoon forced threats, including flooding rain as well as damaging winds in the near future. That was Wang Tianyi on two approaching typhoons and their possible impacts on China. Authorities say Adalia was the strongest storm hitting Florida's Big Bend region in the past century, made landfall as a strong hurricane and unleashed devastation along a wide stretch of the Gulf Coast. Deanna Criswell at the Federal Emergency Management Agency says rushing water has submerged many homes near the coast. While it is still too soon to assess the total damages, we know that the storm made landfall as a Category 3, which means over 120 mile per hour winds and up to 10 inches of rain in some areas. And in fact, Idalia is the strongest storm to hit this part of Florida, to make landfall in this part of Florida in over 100 years. So far, officials have not confirmed any storm-related deaths in Florida. Adalia remained a hurricane as it crossed into Georgia with top winds of around 145 kilometers per hour. Adalia grew into a Category 2 system on Tuesday, then a Category 3 storm on Wednesday, before peaking as a Category 4 hurricane. It then weakened slightly. A severe drought has caused a severe backlog in the Panama Canal. 150 vessels are stuck in this critical shipping artery connecting the Atlantic and the Pacific. Michelle Begay reports. Panama, one of the wettest countries in the world, is now facing one of its driest seasons on record. The drought is affecting operations at the Panama Canal, where fresh water flow is vital to its lock system. The ships passing through now face restrictions, creating long queues. We went from 38 ships a day to 32, and also a restriction on size, with a maximum draft of 13 meters down from 15 meters. This means they need to pass with less merchandise, and they need to wait 15 days for authorization to pass through the canal. One hydrologist in Panama specializing in climate change says experts have been researching much-needed long-term solutions to improve water efficiency. In 2019 to 2020, the Panama Canal also experienced drought conditions. We have to prepare ourselves. We have to work to assure the future and work on the uncertainty that is produced by climate change and the effects of weather phenomena like El Nino and how this affects the water supply of the canal. Officials say the severity of this drought has no precedence, and they've extended shipping restrictions for at least another 10 months. For more than a century, the Interoceanic Highway has shortened shipping routes, thanks to a series of lock gates that lift vessels above sea level and guide them across the Panama Isthmus, connecting the Pacific Ocean with the Atlantic Ocean. The waterway links more than 1,900 ports across 170 countries. The drought-related restrictions that started earlier this year have affected all types of goods, from food, medicine, toys, solar panels, to commodities like copper and liquid gas. One economist says this is just one example of how drastic changes in our world's climate will begin to have major impacts on our economy, especially in the goods supply chain.
Dos tercios de las mercancías que transitan por el canal. Two thirds of the goods that travel through the canal go to the U.S. So in this moment, it could generate an inflation problem, because many of these products are tied to Black Friday and holiday shopping. So it could make the price of goods go up because of added transit costs and lengths. That was a report on the impacts of climate change on international shipping and supplies. A National Intangible Cultural Heritage Workshop in Zhejiang Province is offering classes to people of all ages on how to create Asian games-themed products. Uh, Joe Fung has uh, spoken with several instructors at the workshop in Haining to learn about people's passion for the upcoming sports event. Recently, people eager to create their own works with Hangzhou Asian Games elements have packed the Xiaoshi Colored Lantern Production Center in Hainin, right next to Hangzhou. 59-year-old Wang Liqing, who leads the center, is a skilled master of the techniques, with over 30 years of experience making colored lanterns. She says they offer different courses and organize contests to inspire more people to participate. Initially, we designed products featuring the game's venues and the three mascots. Over time, we started integrating the Haining Tide into our designs, as it is connected to the Qiantang River in Hangzhou. By combining the tide and surfboards with the mascots, we believe it better embodies the spirit of sports. We also incorporate other forms of art like calligraphy, seal cutting, paper cutting and poetry. The techniques for making Xiaoshi colored lanterns were among the first to be included in the National Intangible Cultural Heritage List in 2006. The main materials used are rice paper, sawali and lead wire. The major skills include drawing, carving, fastening and embroidering. Zhu Miaofeng has been learning the craft at the workshop for 10 years. Now she not only creates her own works with Asian Games elements, but also helps other villagers to learn and create. Zhu says arranging Asian Games-related activities for primary and middle school students has greatly improved their understanding of the games. We've already held six training sessions this summer for young and elderly people. We teach them how to create their own works, such as the Asian Games mascot or logo. They make and produce them on the spot. They said even though they cannot compete as athletes, they can cheer for the Asian Games through the intangible cultural heritage. So we want to make more people appreciate our intangible cultural heritage while cheering for the Asian Games. The workshop also cultivates young inheritors who play a vital role in teaching children and passing down the intangible cultural heritage. 27-year-old villager Wang Chenting is one of them. Wang says the latest projects are also generating incomes for those in need. We included elements from Hainan and the Asian Games elements in our activities for children. Through the process of making lanterns, they also get to learn about the knowledge and charms of the Asian Games. Moreover, we have a project that involves Xiaoshi lantern derivative products featuring the Asian Games. This project pairs with families in need on a one-on-one basis. The funds from selling the artworks are used to support these families. The center also offers courses to people with disabilities to help them gain more skills. So far, it has created over 60 types of products and taught around 3,000 students. For the Beijing Hour, this is Zhou Fang. Coming up, Afghanistan marks two years since the withdrawal of U.S. troops.
Dubbed the seventh natural wonder of the world, the Great Wildebeest Migration stands as the planet's most astonishing animal migration. However, this breathtaking natural spectacle is under threat from climate change. This time, not any migration cross main crossing. Join us on Climate Watch this week to explore the impact of climate change on this ancient journey, and learn how we can come together to preserve this majestic migration for future generations. At twenty minutes past the hour. Afghanistan's marked two years since the hasty withdrawal of U.S.-led troops. The exit came as the Taliban swept back to power after a 20-year war against the U.S.-led coalition forces that invaded Afghanistan following the September 11th attacks in 2001. Simariyali Abbasin reports from Kabul. On August 30, 2021, the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, Major General Chris Dunahua, boarded the last U.S. military flight out of Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan. The U.S. and Allied forces completed their withdrawal from the country. In early September 2021, the Taliban formed a government of their own, and all of the key positions went to the senior commanders of the group. The end of the large-scale conflict in Afghanistan in 2021 led to an improvement in overall security situation and a remarkable reduction in civilian casualties. According to the UNHCR, humanitarian aid has been able to reach all provinces, including many areas which had been inaccessible for decades. On the other hand, many challenges remain, particularly for women and girls. Secondary schools has been shut for girls. Female students are not allowed to go to universities, and women have limited access to work. The Taliban leadership says that the restrictions on women will continue until further notice. According to a recent UN report, widespread food insecurity, soaring inflation, and high economic instability exacerbated. By the sanctions and loss of aid, limited livelihoods, and more frequent and severe climate shocks are stated as the main challenges that Afghanistan is facing. That was Imariyali Abbasin on challenges for Afghanistan after a 20-year U.S. occupation. U.S. government sanctions on Afghanistan are impeding medical aid from international organizations. The United States has frozen billions of dollars of foreign exchange reserves in the Central Bank of Afghanistan, making it difficult for international funds to flow into the country. As a result, the United Nations Children's Fund has suspended its grants to hospitalized children for several months.、Uh, Samuel、uh, Amadi is a doctor in、uh, Kabul Children's Hospital. In the past. UNICEF would provide 9,000 Afghanis each to those hospitalized children undergoing treatment in the Department of Malnutrition, which was a great help for the patients to buy medicine and other things. But now the subsidy has been suspended for about four or five months. The International Committee of the Red Cross has also announced that it'll stop funding all 25 hospitals in Afghanistan at the end of the month. A recent survey shows that nearly 29 million people in Afghanistan require immediate humanitarian aid, accounting for 70 percent of the total population of the country. With Venezuela's econ-、uh, economy gradually improving,、uh, internet entrepreneurship is gaining popularity in the country. However, U.S. sanctions are choking foreign investment.、Uh, Lei Shengping reports from Caracas. Pedro Idago works as an online ride-hailing motorcycle driver for a local internet company called Yumi. His monthly income has grown from 120 U.S. dollars to between three and four hundred U.S. dollars since joining the company. Este, yo ingreso a Yumi por un mejor beneficio económico. 
I became an online ride-hailing motorcycle driver to earn a better salary and provide a better life for my family. Now my earnings have greatly improved. If I were still in my previous job, it would have been impossible to cover all my daily expenses. Yumi is the first startup in Venezuela that offers various online services such as ride-hailing, food ordering, and online shopping. Established in 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic. The company has expanded its operations to more than 20 cities in Venezuela, with more than 20,000 registered drivers. Yumi Managing Director Francisco Rodriguez says, "Without the American sanctions, Yumi would have grown bigger. We're bringing millions of dollars that、uh, to to people that are that are bringing home those dollars." And that's an opportunity that was really scarce. Like those twenty thousand plus drivers are actually probably like three people per family, and that means sixty thousand people are being impacted with、uh, earnings that they could not have before. The rise of internet entrepreneurship has not only brought convenience to local consumers, but has also created more job opportunities for Venezuelans. However, the real challenge lies in the significant financial sanctions imposed by the United States on Venezuela. Ridery is another internet ride-hailing startup in Venezuela. Established in 2021, Ridery has confronted significant difficulties in getting foreign investments from Europe and the U.S. According to CEO Gerson David Gomez. The Ridery team has approached over a hundred international investors, but no foreign venture capital firms want to have any presence in the startup business of Venezuela. Finally, they had to seek help from local limited financial sources. I think that there are, I see, like two reasons.、Uh, first one is that many VC firms think that the sanctions can affect affect them. And the second one is that a lot of bad news has gone to these VCs, the managers. They think that maybe in Venezuela there is a lot of insecurity, that you cannot do business, etc. In addition to Yumi and Ridery, Venezuela has seen the emergence of several internet startups in mobile payments, financial technology, online education, and medical care. But many of these startups have failed halfway due to shortage of financial sources. Guillermo Guzman is the head of Caracas-based internet startup incubation institution. The the American VCs are not allowed to invest in Venezuela by law. That ban on investing in Venezuela has been affecting、uh, well the Venezuelan market. The main effect of those sanctions has been the scarcity of capital for. Uh, Venezuelan entrepreneurs. He says, as a result of American sanctions, many Venezuelan entrepreneurs have to shift their business operations to other countries like Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil. For the Beijing Hour, this is Lei Xiangping in Caracas, Venezuela.
the first time Haitian officials say a judge has interrogated suspects in the assassination of President Jovenel Moyes. Suspects were arrested more than two years ago. The states accused them of being part of a mercenary squad that assassinated Moyes in his private residence in 2021. The 18 Colombian soldiers are among more than 40 suspects, including elite Haitian police officers. We're at 28 minutes past the hour. Beijing's at 19 degrees this evening. It'll be cloudy in 30 on Friday. Chongqing's down to 23, then clouds in 33. Lhasa dips to 10 degrees, then sunny in 24. Hong Kong has heavy rainfall and 27 degrees overnight. Then it's torrential rainfall and a high of 30. Uh, elsewhere, Tokyo's 25 this evening. It's sunny in 33 on Friday. Islamabad's down to 24 degrees. Tomorrow's sunny in 37. Bangkok's at 27 overnight, then rainfall in 34 on Friday. In Africa, Nairobi is getting mostly cloudy skies in 34. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 9 this evening. Uh, tomorrow's mostly sunny and 18 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, China's ambassador to the U.S. has commented on bilateral cooperation following the American Commerce Secretary's visit to Beijing. The head of the military junta in Gabon's named a transitional leader for the Central American country. And Afghanistan's marking two years since the hasty withdrawal of U.S. troops from the country. Shane Bigham with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. An additional General Railway Company Deutsche Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, or a sophisticated learner, there is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Thursday. Still to come, in business, China's manufacturing sector reported improvements in August. In sports, Chinese tennis player pulls off an incredible upset at the U.S. Open. In culture and entertainment, Oppenheimer enjoys a strong opening at the Chinese box office. To contact us, you can email audionewsroom at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. But firstly, checking the day's headline news, here's Tianyu. Thank you, Shane. China says it will take necessary countermeasures to a U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. A spokesperson says the sale benefits the U.S. military-industrial complex at the expense of the safety and interests of people in Taiwan. 
The spokesperson says the U.S. is fully responsible for the difficulties in relations between the armies of the two countries. He says the two sides have maintained communication, but it has also it has to be based on principles. The spokesperson called on the U.S. to work with China on steering ties back on track. The Johannesburg municipal government says at least 60 people have died in a fire in a multi-story building in the city's central business district. Emergency management services say the blaze also injured dozens of people. The fire happened in the early hours on Thursday. Officials said the number of casualties is likely to rise. Search and rescue operations are underway. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says his government will tone down infighting to boost the economy. The cabinet held a two-day meeting on the country's economy, coming up with plans to encourage uh, climate-friendly investment, provide tax relief for companies, and cut red tape. We are making sure that things progress that hadn't progressed in Germany. For example, the expansion of renewable energies. But the fact is that we have set ourselves the goal of making this happen more quietly. Scholz leads a coalition of socially liberal parties that took power in late 2021 with a progressive agenda. But their approaches to economic and other issues are often at odds, overshadowed by internal squabbling with the environmentalists and the pro-business Free Democrats. United Nations sanctions in Mali is ending after Russia cast a veto. Thirteen Security Council members voted in favor of a resolution to extend the UN sanctions and independent monitoring for another year. Abstaining from the vote, Chinese Ambassador Dai Bing said the country hopes to maintain peace and stability in Mali. I wish to appear once again that maintaining peace and stability in Mali and the region as a whole is in the common interest of the international community. The international community and the UN should continue to provide assistance and support based on respecting the sovereignty and leadership of the countries concerned. Russia proposed extending UN sanctions in Mali for one final year, but immediately ending the independent monitoring. It was the only country to vote yes, while Japan voted no and the remaining 13 members abstained. The first giant panda cub born in Russia came into the world at the Moscow Zoo. Zoo director Svetlana Akulova says the cub is healthy. A small panda cub weighing 150 grams was born at a young couple of giant pandas Ruyi and Ding Ding. Gender is not known yet. Ding Ding immediately took care and embraced panda cub. Mother and cub are being taken on close monitoring around the clock and undergo all necessary medical tests. Ruyi and Dingding arrived in Moscow in 2019 to mark the 70th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between China and Russia. The busiest subway station in New York City has flooded due to a water main break. The flooding at the Times Square 42nd Street station in Manhattan happened after a 127-year-old water main broke under 40th Street and 7th Avenue. About 1.8 million gallons, or 6.8 million liters of water, entered the station, flooding the train tracks on the 1, 2, and 3 lines. New York City Transit President Richard Davey calls for a sewer system that functions properly. If the sewer system isn't functioning as it should be, uh, you know, water seeps into our system, which is another place where we need to work closely with, with DEP. We have and we continue to. It's making sure that whether it's a water break like this and 
you know, they're able to shut it off more quickly or, you know, having the capacity in the sewer system here in New York City to capture that water and get rid of it before it seeps down to our subway system, that, that's a big issue. Subway service was temporarily suspended on the three flooded lines. About 300,000 customers use those lines on a regular morning rush at rush hour every day. Thank you very much for the update. That was Tian Yu reporting. This is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital. And coming up in business, China's manufacturing sector reported improvements in August. China's economy has encountered some setbacks. The recovery of some key sectors have fallen short of market expectations. As the property market is experiencing a prolonged depression, some people are looking to a swan song for the world's second largest economy. Is the Chinese economy really crashing? What needs to be done to solidify the country's growth? Get the answers to these questions and more on this week's Chat Lounge on all major podcast platforms and CGTN Radio. About 36 past the hour, turning to business now, and the Chinese markets closed lower on Thursday. Timothy Pope has more. Chinese equities slipped lower for the first time this week as the latest manufacturing sector data uh, continued to paint a little bit of a lackluster picture. The Shanghai Composite and Shenzhen Component Indexes each declined by around uh, six-tenths of one percent. Banking stocks, though, were among the leaders, uh, with ICBC the biggest contributor to gains in Shanghai. Uh, that comes after its uh, first half profit report hit the markets uh, alongside uh, Bank of China's report as well. Uh, both of uh, their profit gains uh, they were 1.2% uh, for ICBC and uh, 8 tenths of 1% for Bank of China uh, in the first half of the year. Uh, not a hugely rosy picture. China's big banks, of course, have been faced with falling lending rates uh, and uh, slow growth uh, in new loans as well, uh, which have hit their bottom lines. And uh, a report in the uh, 21st Century Business Herald said the banks are preparing to make cuts to uh, interest rates on existing mortgages too, which uh, could put more pressure on uh, the bank's margins. We saw uh, real estate developer stocks feeling the most pain. The industry uh, has been shaken by the latest results from several big players. China banker stocks were down by about 4% in Shenzhen after the company reported a 19.4% drop in first half net profit and a 2.9% drop in revenue. Uh, and uh, even China's biggest real estate firm by sales, Poly Developments, traded lower, shed about 5.2%, uh, despite saying that its first half profit grew by 12.7%. That was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index was down around a half a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei gained around nine-tenths of a percent. Official data shows China's manufacturing sector witnessed an improved business climate in August as its Purchasing Managers Index expanded from last month. The Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index rose to 49.7. Among the 21 surveyed industries, 12 reported expansion in August. Data also showed that PMI for non-manufacturing sectors stood at 51 in August, which indicates robust activities in service and construction industries. China's composite PMI stood at 51.3 for August. August, signaling that overall production at manufacturing and non-manufacturing enterprises have continued to expand. Bank of China said that it's seen accelerated growth in domestic yuan-denominated loans in the first half of the year. Uh, domestic yuan loans increased by around 1.5 trillion yuan over, or, or over 200 billion U.S. dollars during the year, or rather uh, from the end of 2022. The bank also noted that interest rates for the loans fell by 43 basis points in the first half. Uh, bank President Liu Jin talked about future plans for Chinese fiscal authorities. 
We will deeply cultivate overseas markets, seize strategic opportunities such as ORCEP, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Guangdong-Hong Kong-Macau Greater Bay Area, as well as the Western Land Sea New Corridor, and support the orderly advancement of RMB internationalization. We'll also promote digital transformation and reform. Well, to meet the needs of the real economy, the bank says it'll continue to expand the scale of new loans and improve the stability and sustainability of the growth of the loans. With transportation accounting for around 17% of China's energy consumption, there's a pressing need for a transition to new energy sources in this sector. China's formulated a strategy that intertwines transportation and green energy as a viable solution. Ho Jing has more. Solar panels on rooftops, sheds, walls, and even along highways are the sources of electricity used in the highway service area of Golden Village in Shandong Province. These plants are no longer just ideas on sand tables, they have been implemented in the real world. The project is the first in China to combine green energy and transportation along an entire highway. In this case, between Zhaozhuang City and Hezhe City in Shandong Province. The highway is 178 kilometers long, running east to west, to guarantee the maximum light intensity for the longest time. The entire Golden Village service area is powered by the green electricity generated by solar panels, wind turbines, which include the service building, fast charging stations, EV battery stations, and more. The project's overall investment stands at approximately 650 million yuan. As per our calculations, the investment return has already exceeded the average level observed among other distributed photovoltaic facilities. As the electric vehicle market penetration rate advances and intelligent transportation systems evolve, the anticipation is that achieving 100% consumption of green electricity within our system could elevate the investment return to a surplus 20 the integration of transportation and energy is committed to creating a green transportation energy system that integrates power source, grids, utilization and storage, and coordinates people, vehicles, roads and energy. This is an important measure to promote the overall planning, collaborative construction, integrated operation, and mutual support of transportation and energy industries. Currently, the operation of the service area and nearby facilities uses 7% of the green energy the project generates. And with further development of new energy vehicles, the construction of smart roads and cold chain logistics, the utilization rate is expected to reach 100% by the year 2036 to 2040. That was Ho Jing reporting from Shandong province. China's lottery sales in July surged 60% on a yearly basis, reaching 48 billion yuan or 6.8 billion U.S. dollars. Sales supporting the welfare system increased 44% at 18 billion yuan. Lottery supporting the sports industry increased 63.5%, topping 31 billion. Through the first seven months, lottery sales increased 50% yearly, exceeding 320 billion yuan. China's central bank has lowered the interest rates on its standing lending facility this month, which can affect mortgages as well as developer financing. Juncture Swan checks out the demand for homes in Shanghai. By the end of next year, the three residential buildings and 21 villas will be completed at Shanghai's Zhangjiang Science City. Though sales are not open yet, 
The reception center is already seeing 30 to 50 groups of clients a day during weekends. We have met the requirement for social insurance payments, and we just got married, so we want to buy a new home in Shanghai. We both work in Pudong, so we want an apartment here. The company has 14 residential property projects under development. More than half of them intended for families looking to upgrade from homes they now own. Take this project in Zhongjiang, for example. Since we opened our reception center at the end of May, we've welcomed more than 1,600 groups. Most are buying for themselves and to trade up from where they're living now. The company has been speeding up its delivery times. Its project in Shanghai's Kangqiao area made delivery to home buyers three months ahead of schedule. It was also the first housing development in the city to make simultaneous delivery of both apartments and their property ownership certificates too. A big saving on paperwork time for everyone. That efficiency has a lot to do with the faster financing that is now available. It's been a year since the Chinese government highlighted the need for timely deliveries of pre-sold homes to their owners. During the past year, financial institutions have been told to help developers with that by extending or adjusting loan repayments. And this year, as the country's residential property market is undergoing some massive changes, such financial support is critical to helping the market hang on until hopefully the demand for home buying recovers. In the first half of the year, especially the second quarter, housing sales data didn't perform well. But in the second half of the year, with the series of new policies, we expect the market will gradually turn better. And then, if financial institutions see better sales figures, they may be willing to lend more money to developers. The National Statistics Bureau last month released data showing that in the first half of this year. The completion area of residential properties rose almost 20 percent from a year ago. And that was Zhang Shuswan reporting from Shanghai. Official data shows Nigeria's annual inflation rate rose to over 24 percent in July, which was mainly driven by a rise in food and fuel prices. The crippling costs for food and fuel were triggered by the government's decision to halt fuel subsidies earlier in the year. According to Nigeria's president, the move was necessary for the country's economic survival. However, economic analyst Samson Okafor says there are better ways to tackle the problem, like investing in infrastructure. Put up the refineries. If they can put up the refineries, it will help us a lot. Because the the effect of all this thing we are we are suffering today is as a result of inability to put up things. I mean, put up the good roads, no good roads, no refinery functioning. That's the priority we expected them to give to the people. President says the government started to overhaul projects at the Port Harcourt refinery, one of、uh, three oil refineries in the country, and、uh, that refinery restarts operation by December. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, a Chinese tennis player pulls off an incredible upset at the U.S. Open. The European football summer transfer window has seen plenty of action this year. We have seen numerous big money moves, and the Saudi Pro League has managed to attract some world-class talent. Be sure to join us on this week's episode of Sideline Story, where we will dive into some of the trending window talking points, such as Harry Kane to Bayern, Jude Bellingham's Real Madrid transfer, and many more.
47 past the hour now turning to sports and here's Brandon Yates. Thank you Shane. We begin with tennis and China's Zhang Jijian pulled off an incredible upset victory at the US Open, defeating fifth seed and last year's runner-up Kasper Ruud in five sets. Zhang explained how he wanted to be fast on the court. I mean I tried to be fast as possible, which is tough already. I mean, so I don't really think too much in that moment. Just get a little bit fresh mind, so reset a little bit, yeah. Well, it's uh, tough, you know. I mean, every, he had a two-match winning already, super confidence, but me too. <laughs> World number one Novak Djokovic also won his match and expressed joy at being back at the event. I still feel I can play better, but you know, the first couple of matches, straight set wins. I'm, I'm happy to be back in New York. I'm happy to be playing here in Artur Ashe in front of you guys. And um, that's what gives me strength, you know, that's what gives me motivation, I guess. In other actions, Stefanos Tsitsipas suffered a shock loss to Dominic Stricker. And on the women's side, China's Zhu Lin defeated Victoria Azarenka in the second round in straight sets. Wang Shiyu also won her match, defeating Sarah Tormo 5-7-6-3-6-4. World number one Iga Swiatek and local favourite Coco Goff also are through to the third round. South Africa will look to leading players like Cheslin Colby and Eben Etzebeth as they try to claim a fourth Rugby World Cup, but the Springboks know they will need a team effort in France as they attempt to hang on to the trophy they lifted four years ago in Japan. CS Duplessis caught up with the star duo ahead of next week's kickoff. As far as rugby goes, there's no bigger prize than winning the Webb Ellis Trophy. South Africa have won that coveted prize three times already, the last time four years ago. A prestigious achievement that star Springbok Cheslin Colby never takes for granted and fills him with an immense sense of pride. Um, it's a privilege and an honour and to go, go out there as defending champions um, sounds good but we know what it, it takes to, to, to win that competition. It's a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice and that's one thing I can say about this team is we, we're willing to go as, as, as far as, as we have to, to to make sure we give ourselves a good and fair opportunity during the, the course of the World Cup. Getting off to a successful start is imperative for a successful World Cup campaign. That's according to the 112 cap veteran Eben Etzebeth, who is expected to play a massive role with his physicality and all-round skill set in the Springboks quest for a fourth World Cup title. Definitely uh, the one we're aiming at. Um, I, I think if we can win that one, it sets up ourselves nicely up for the quarterfinal. Um, obviously, there's three more games after that. Uh, but you, we know you, you have to beat the big teams in the pool to get through. Uh, so, yeah, we, we focus on Scotland and really excited for the test against them. Playing your first game in the pool, you want to get off to a good start. And every game after that is just as important as the first one as well. So, yeah, um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of discussion and a lot of planning during the uh, couple of weeks coming and I'm sure each and every one of us just willing to go out there and, and make sure we train as well as we can and making sure that we deliver whenever we get the opportunity to play. The fleet-footed tri-machine who spent six years playing for Toulouse and Toulon in France says the event promises to be extra special in the rugby-mad country. That was CS Duplessis on South Africa's preparations for the Rugby World Cup. Greet Asia in Hangzhou. Embrace the excitement of the games. In today's Meet Asia in Hangzhou section, we look back at the sixth edition of the Asian Games, which Thailand hosted once again. Chiju has more. 
The Asian Games returned to Bangkok in 1970 after original host Seoul dropped his bid, citing financial and security reasons. The previous host, Thailand, stepped in to save the Asiad and staged the games with the help of fans from South Korea and other participating countries and regions. Organizers also released official commemorative stamps and coins in an attempt to raise more funds. Over 2,400 athletes competed in the event, with sailing making its debut as one of 13 sports. Tennis and table tennis were dropped from the program for budgetary purposes. The Bangkok Games also marked the first Asian Games to be broadcast on television. Japan topped the table with 74 gold, 47 silver, and 23 bronze medals. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Xizhi. In football transfer news, English Premier League club Brighton has reportedly agreed on a loan deal for the signing of Barcelona's Ansu Fati. The 20-year-old Spain forward was convinced to join the Seagulls due to their style of play and the coaching of Roberto De Zerbi. The deal will be a straight loan without an option to buy because Fati hopes to figure for Barcelona again next season. And Chelsea has reached an agreement in principle to sign Manchester City's Cole Palmer. City and Chelsea have reportedly agreed to a fee expected to be forty million pounds plus five million in add-ons. Staying with City, the defending English Premier League champions have also reached a verbal agreement with the Wolves for Mateus Nunes. The Portuguese midfielder agreed to personal terms last week, and the fee is expected to be around fifty million pounds plus five million in add-ons. And finally, Chelsea. China lost to Puerto Rico 107-89 in their final group game at the FIBA Basketball World Cup in Manila. Thank you very much. That was Brandon Yates reporting. Coming up in culture and entertainment, Oppenheimer enjoys a strong opening at the Chinese box office. Would you like to receive the latest news updates about China and the rest of the globe? Tune in to the Beijing Hour every weekday for the latest in politics, business. Sports and entertainment from a Chinese perspective. Subscribe to the Beijing Hour for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Fifty-four minutes past the hour now. Turning to culture and entertainment, Yang Guang joins us now. Thank you, Shane. Acclaimed director Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer premiered on the Chinese mainland atop the box office on Wednesday. It raked in over 37 million yuan or 5 million U.S. dollars ahead of domestic crime drama No More Bats. Chen Xuan earlier spoke with Nolan on his techniques for filming, set building, music, and acting. Personally, I am very curious that how did you、um, manage to eliminate the barrier between the big screen? And your audience, enabling such deep immersion into a character's inner world. I think、uh, there are a number of techniques we employed. We filmed using IMAX 70 millimeter film, which is the highest resolution imaging format ever devised. And my feeling is that on on a screen this big, it, it allows you to immerse yourself in the world of the character, and the frame around the image disappears. And you can just be there in the world of the characters. And also,、um, we've seen so many familiar Hollywood faces. How did you guide them to better embody their roles using any specific method?、Uh, not any one specific method.、Uh, as you say, some of these are actors I've worked with before. Killian Murphy, I've worked with for 20 years. I know him very well. Imagine a future 
and our imaginings horrify us. And so there's an ease of communication, and he's not an actor who requires a lot of discussion on set. We do a lot of the discussion before we start shooting. Um, but every act is different. Matt Damon, who I work with on Interstellar. Why? How about because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world? It always comes very, very prepared, but also very willing to engage in conversations about how he can reinterpret a scene. There's a chance when we push that button, we destroy the world. And Emily Blunt, uh, she's somebody I'd wanted to work with for a long time. I've been a big admirer of her work. And Kitty Oppenheimer is one of the most complicated characters in the film. I think they've all delivered um, tremendous and exceptional performances for this film. It's actually a lot of homework that done before mm. even you started um, shooting. Yeah, I mean, you try and use the time in pre-production. Pre-production can be months long. Um, you know, we were having to build the town of Los Alamos, we were having to find locations. There's a lot of work to be done and, and I get very busy, um, but I also try to find time within that to sit with the cast and really talk through all the possibilities, you know, what things could be, and really explore things intellectually. We don't necessarily rehearse a lot. Sometimes we do a bit of a read-through, you know, whatever, but, but really it's about discussion and conversation about what they can bring uh, to their characters. That was Chen Xuan speaking with Christopher Nolan on his latest film, Oppenheimer. Guizhou Province is hosting this year's China ASEAN Education Cooperation Week. Initiated in 2008, the event has evolved into a high-level platform that helps to boost China-ASEAN cooperation and education. China and ASEAN countries have formed an alliance to advance digital transformation of education, drawing more than 60 international education institutions. Their vision is to build a transnational platform and a cooperation network to help learners lower their educational costs and gain lifetime learning opportunities. And finally, the 2023 cafe show China opens in Beijing on Friday to celebrate the country's burgeoning coffee culture. With a 10-year history, the three-day event is attracting 260 exhibitors and 48,000 visitors from home and abroad. This year's event will feature key players and innovators in the Chinese coffee market, including grain coffee traders, roasters, and other industry stakeholders. Top coffee-producing countries such as Colombia, Ethiopia, and Jamaica will also be attending. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang reporting. And we're at 58 past the hour. Beijing's at 19 degrees overnight. Tomorrow's cloudy and 30. Chongqing's down to 23 this evening, then cloudy and 33. Last is at 10 overnight, then sunny and 24. Hong Kong has heavy rainfall and 27 this evening. Tomorrow, it's torrential rain with a high of 30. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 25 overnight. It's sunny and 33 on Friday. Islamabad's at 24 this evening, then sunny and 37. Bangkok's down to 27, then a light rainfall and 34 degrees. Uh, in Africa, Nairobi is getting most Mostly cloudy conditions in 34 degrees. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 9 this evening, then it's mostly sunny in 18. Auckland 7 overnight, then partly cloudy in 17. Port Vila some clouds in 27 degrees Celsius. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, China's ambassador to the U.S. has commented on bilateral cooperation following the American Commerce Secretary's visit to Beijing. And Afghanistan's marking two years since the hasty withdrawal of U.S. troops from the country. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together.
wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African. How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa talk. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there. A million, a billion, or maybe a gazillion years ago, a giant split open an egg. Then came the lady giant who made people, and Mr. Curious, the botanist, Mr. Handyman, the Baron on the tree. This is our new season of Chinese folk tales, and we will explore the ancient mystical world together. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.